This is Pave It Black. This is Pave It Black. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Pave It Black, the official podcast of the National Asphalt Pavement Association. My name is Richard Willis. I'm Brett Williams. And today we're talking about a subject that might sound a little bit different from what we typically discuss. Most users, as they're driving down highways, probably don't know if the road is asphalt or concrete. But one thing that they do know is it's smooth or not. Smoothness is something that is really important for user satisfaction, according to the Federal Highway Administration. And it's even been shown to save users and owners of roadways money over time. So one of the questions that I'm curious about is how agencies or pavement owners address pavement smoothness during construction. And then I'm also kind of curious how agencies quantify the value of smooth pavements or understand its value proposition. So to help us talk a little bit about this today and get a different perspective, we've invited Kevin McGee and Tanvir Chowdhury to come talk to us. Welcome to the podcast. And can you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do, Kevin and then Tanvir? Sure, and thanks for having me on. I'm Kevin McGee. I'm the Associate Director of Research for VDOT's Research Council, and I lead the Pavements Research Team. And I have a little bit of history dating back 20-some years or so with VDOT's approach to constructing smoothness and hopefully keeping it that way. At the present, I am uh, more of an administrator, but I am the keeper of a lot of history that I hope is relevant to the discussion today. Hey, good afternoon, folks. My name is Tanvir Chaudhary. I am currently the Richmond District Maintenance Engineer. And prior to this job, I was the manager of the payment management program in VDOT, and I have done that for a long time. I have been involved in VDOT's payment management program one way or the other since 2002-2003 timeframe, almost 20 years of history in terms of how the VDOT's payment management program has evolved over the years. Glad to be with you guys today, and thank you for inviting me. Yeah, great to have you both. One of the first questions I'm kind of curious about today is if we could maybe get a little background on what some of the asphalt payment properties that Virginia DOT measures when they're accepting roads or highways that have been constructed in their program. We've kind of got the material and facility acceptance and compliance that goes on that's not very different, I think, from most state DOTs. And then we've got the constructed quality properties that we look at. Also, not unlike most DOTs, that is primarily with asphalt pavements, I guess the first thing you think about when you think about constructed quality is density. And we're certainly one of those states that recognizes the importance of getting good compaction. We've recently changed to do some work where we test and incentivize on testing of density by core or plug. The fact that we've used for years non-destructive testing and nuclear gauges for, for density acceptance may be a little different than a lot of states, but we're now kind of seeing the light and moving towards accepting on density by actual plugs for a lot of our higher profile work. The other area that really began to evolve in really kind of interesting and for me exciting ways back in the late 90s is acceptance on on smoothness. 
And we thought we were getting at a number of things when we really began to sort of spin up an acceptance program built around ride quality. One of the things we certainly thought we were tackling was uniformity of construction or work a bit workmanship. I think we did do that. I think that was part of it. I think the fact that a smoother pavement is something that the traveling public enjoys more was a side benefit in our view at the time. At the time, we didn't anticipate that uh, there would be such an expanded benefit during the use phase in terms of lower, reduced costs to the traveler in terms of uh, vehicle operating and the big one that's affecting environment and that's fuel consumption. I was curious with some of those requirements for acceptance, is there any variance based on the type of project, whether like it's a higher speed or slower speed or what kind of facility? Does, is there some variance on some of the requirements for the properties? In both cases, there are. I think it's about 5,000 vehicles per day before we'll do what we call method A testing for density. That's when we go to destructive testing. And so that's, the, I guess, the vast majority of most of the payments that a lot of traffic is seeing these days. On the other hand, the um, smoothness requirement, likewise, it's not 5,000 vehicles per day, but we've got interstates and non-interstates. I don't think we get more particular than that in terms of the breakdown between what our smoothness targets are, but they are very different for those two classifications of, of facilities. Now, thanks for that. When I think about measuring and quality control, quality assurance, there are some things that are pretty straightforward to understand how they're done. Things like density or some states do asphalt content or aggregate gradation. But smoothness is something that's a, a little bit more involved in terms of collecting and analyzing and utilizing than some of those other properties. So can you share a little bit about how your agency collects these measurements and what are even good smoothness values in your mind? We're a little unusual, I think, in Virginia in that we conduct the acceptance testing with state force equipment. We actually own inertial road profilers. These are the devices that directly measure road profile. And from those profiles, we do a simulation that, and everybody else does, that calculates international roughness index. And so we accept constructed smoothness by the international roughness index value that we generate from the profiles that are collected by our equipment. I call them the 21st century inspectors. They're out there testing newly constructed pavements. And we have to do this within 30 days of laydown of the new overlays. And like I said, we have different targets for interstates and non-interstates. And to answer your question about what are good smoothness values, this, this hopefully will give you some idea of where we are, at least in Virginia. And Tambier certainly should, could speak to this as well. For two decades, he managed the payments that we helped construct. But our 100% pay range, so we have incentives and disincentives built around our smoothness targets, but our 100% pay range for non-interstates is 65 to 80 inches per mile. So if you get smoother than that, we begin to pay some incentives. And those incentives have changed over the years. We can talk about that if you want to, but they get substantially higher if you get down to under 55 inches per mile on those non-interstates. You start incurring some disincentives once it gets over that about 80, and it really gets tough when we get over about 100. On interstates, the um, 
100% pay range is a little tighter and it's 55 to 70. And you've got to get under 45 to get the maximum incentive of, of 15%. That's a nice incentive, I think. It's, it's 15% of the bid price. Does the agency monitor smoothness after construction? So during the pavement service life, and then do those measurements feed into maintenance activities, whether it's pavement condition ratings or different ways that the department's really handling those in-service pavements? Yeah, thank you for the question. That question is right in my area. So Kevin was talking about the IRI numbers that determines the bonus or the penalties for the contractors, whether it's a construction work or a maintenance work. For the management and maintenance of our pavements, we also have a separate program where we measure IRI for the entire network, the entire interstate primary and part of our secondary network every year. Those values are fed into our pavement management system, and it helps us make decisions based on the IRI values, which is one of the inputs in our decision-making process. I also wanted to let you know that based on the IRI values, we do categorize our pavements based on excellent, good, fair, poor, and very poor. On the interstate, we do have specific values for each of these ranges. On the interstate and the primaries, anything less than 60, we consider excellent. And anything greater than 200 is very poor. And in between, you have good, fair, and poor ranges. We do have a slightly different scale for the secondaries, given the secondaries carry different types of traffic, and those are different types of pavements and road network. But we do monitor our network condition roughness on a yearly basis. We also publish that information on our state of the pavement report. This information goes on our agency dashboard in terms of what percent of our pavements are in which condition category. So for example, based on the data that we collected in 2019, the report that we published, almost 4.3% of our interstate network was above 140, and 12.2% of our primary mileages were above 140. And the same number for the secondaries were about 32.6%. So all this information are just basically network level information that are published in a state of the pavement report that summarizes our pavement condition. It helps us manage our pavement network. We do have a yearly paving maintenance budget of close to $500 million. And IRI values is one of the input into our decision-making process as to which roads should get what type of treatment. You briefly mentioned that you do have an incentive-based program for building smoother roads. And we've kind of skirted along the edges of, of answering this question already, but if you're willing to pay more for it, there's definitely got to be quantifiable benefits that y'all are seeing as an owner. So what are the reasons or what are those benefits that you are seeing and how are you quantifying to ensure that, yep, it's continuing to work well? Like you said, the, the incentive system has even changed over time. How do you decide when it's time to change it up so that it works better? That goes back a long ways. I did a little review of the history that I could find when I knew this podcast was coming up. The one thing that I've 
been active in uh, in this context since I was a new researcher in the mid-90s has been documenting what's been going on with our constructive routability or routability program. In our very first study that was kind of exploring how we might use the International Roughness Index to promote smoothness in new construction or maintenance resurfacing more prominently, we looked at the potential benefit. Our first incentives were just pulled from the old uh, California profilograph special provision for smoothness that we'd had, I guess, for maybe a decade or so before. So we just borrowed that in the max incentive, and we looked at, at that to co- sort of gauge where our disincentives were as well. So we didn't really have any re- basis other than that, and finished the first study that kind of reviewed the first couple of years of experience with the IRI-based provision. We did find, on average, that pavements that were constructed with the ride spec were smoother. Well, they were documentably smoother statistically significantly smoother, but projecting that into service life was difficult then, although we could see that, that we're going to start life smoother. We hope that would continue. But we did, we did even then, it was 1999, we did have the early models for fuel consumption and how IRI impacted fuel consumption. And we could demonstrate within really short order that the pavements that were constructed with the ride spec were responsible for incurring significantly less fuel consumption costs on the behalf of the users. In fact, we documented somewhere between, it was simple calculations, between $150,000 to $200,000 per lane mile with the pavements that were constructed with the smoothest spec. And this was only truck traffic. The spec was paying for itself within the first year and some change, just in the savings to the traveling public. And this is a longer story, but a few years later, we were approached by contractors and told I was actually approached at a concrete uh, asphalt conference in Virginia. And I was told by a contractor's quality assurance lead, our rideability program wasn't doing us any good that our contractors were bidding in the disincentives. And so in the end, we were still paying just as much and we weren't getting any benefit. And I thought that was a reasonable question. And so we launched into a a much more in-depth study that gave us another five years or five to seven years of experience with the rideability program. In that case, we were able to document life extensions on pavements that were constructed with the smoothness specification of a couple years to as much as seven years, mainly looking at how the accumulation of roughness progressed. And in that case, we also found, once again, that the savings to the traveling public, people using those facilities, the models were a little better by then. And it was already becoming apparent that in the use phase of pavements that were constructed more smoothly, we were realizing, societally speaking, we were realizing significant savings and they were dwarfing the costs, any of our construction costs. And it was very hard to tell anybody that almost any incentive was not justifiable in that context. But we've eventually settled on the 15%. And that seems to be enough to get uh, the contractor's attention on that end if the contractor's is receptive to incentives. And if they're not, then the other end is steep enough in terms of disincentives to keep them from not paying the attention they should. Incidentally, 
in terms of the price paid, that gentleman who approached me at the conference was not wrong. Some people were bidding in the disincentive, but just as many were bidding in apparently the incentives, and it was coming out in a wash, and there was no statistical difference in the price we were paying for pavement that was going to be placed with the ride quality spec versus not. Yeah, I was just going to add to what uh, Kevin was saying. It is sort of a known fact in the pavement community since I have been in this business that the pavements that are built smoother, they last longer and they stay smoother longer. So we as practitioners have always known that as a fact. We sort of left it to the researchers to come up with the exact numbers as far as uh, what is the quantifiable benefit there. But it is sort of a known fact within the practitioners that pavements that are built smoother, they stay smoother longer, and that results in lower maintenance costs over a longer period of time. So obviously, we have always strived for that. And going back to the incentive-disincentive program that we have here in, in VDOT, we have definitely seen quantifiable benefits of this program over the long-term performance of pavements and pavement network. And I can also tell you based on the bids that we receive, I know that uh, particularly where we have good competition in certain areas of the state where there are three or four good contractors bidding on the same jobs, we know that they sort of build the incentives into their bids that also gives us good price, that gives us good quality in terms of the work. So it is a uh, win-win for everyone. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thank you. I was recently reviewing a report from Virginia Transportation Research Council, and I think it was recently released. It was titled Life Cycle Impact Assessment of Recycled Pavement Projects in Virginia. And one of the findings from the study pointed out during the use stage of a pavement, approximately 98% of the total global warming score, which was some model that was worked through in the paper, I believe, result basically of that score came from the pavement smoothness. So I just was interested if you're seeing global warming or emissions and how our pavements are constructed starting to be looked at a little closer or if you have any other thoughts on that area. You're right, Brett. That was a recent publication. We actually did most of that work by contract with our partners at Virginia Tech or or the Virginia Tech Transportation Institute. And they were working with models, many of the models that John Harvey from UC Davis has developed and a lot of the, you know, California is obviously sort of leaders in, in pursuing this perspective of societal cost or life cycle assessment, looking at cradle to grave or whatever the buzzwords are of different ways to build and maintain things and how they impact global warming potentials, what you see a lot in that report talked about. And so we honestly naively perhaps, started that work thinking we were going to look at various recycling techniques that we were using around the state for the last decade or so, because there are different ways, different materials that we use, different processes that we use to reclaim in place or to pull material out, take it to a plant and recycle it through a plant 
where we could save in terms of trucking material around, avoiding the use of virgin stone and new asphalt, just any of the new materials that we could go without using with these various techniques. And then which processes, and I'm talking about stabilizing with cement versus stabilizing with emulsions or foamed asphalt, which processes and which material combinations and which situations were providing some ability to discern significant differences in global warming potential. We were thinking construction costs and all those sub-costs that are associated with those different techniques may be substantially different from one another. And if that were the case, given that most of us are kind of looking at global warming and our impacts on environment in the future, we could pursue some of those techniques and materials more earnestly than others. As it turned out, there are differences. If you use a cement, and since this is asphalt community, you'll like this. If you're using cement as a stabilizing agent, chances are your global warming scores are going to be a little worse, a little higher amongst your construction costs. On the flip side, amongst a lot of the projects that we looked at as part of that study, some of those cement stabilized approaches for recycling and reclaiming also showed some good trends in terms of staying stiff and so maintaining their shape for longer periods of time under service. Not substantially different, but the thing that was overwhelmingly revealed to us through that work is regardless of which approach and which combination of materials that you take, what you really wanted to do, because like you repeated this statistic, it came out of a report, 98% of the global warming score or global warming impact comes in the use phase. Not while that thing's being constructed or reconstructed, but while that pavement is in service. And so whatever approach you use, the very best approach, if you're trying to be friendly to the environment, is just build something that's smooth and stays that way as long as it possibly can. Because that's where you're going to score the big points in terms of reduced overall societal cost or low global warming contribution. We'll be pursuing that in the future, sensitive to the fact that the use phase and Tambier's former job, and I'm sure in his current job managing the, the maintenance for a district, those are the guys that are watching stuff in service. And so they'll be giving us feedback, uh, those of us that are studying the ways to get there, uh, how important they are. This question probably falls more for Tanvir because it's taking these concepts that we're doing research on and then actually trying to put them into practice and make decisions so that you can have the most sustainable transportation network possible. Thinking back in 2016, I believe it was 2016, there was a rulemaking that came out looking at on-road greenhouse gas emissions as part of the performance of a network. We know that States have to report things like IRI and cracking and rutting for asphalt, but they wanted a performance metric around greenhouse gas emissions as well as a part of that. And we've been hearing that there may be efforts to bring that rulemaking back. So if you as a, as a DOT or an entity are being asked for improvements in terms of greenhouse gas emissions... How do you use smoothness as a tool in your toolbox to kind of help advance the DOT? And how do you use that in the decision-making process of what to do? 
So that's where the network level management and managing the pavement condition, making sure that you are meeting certain performance targets in terms of your network, pavement uh, condition network, you know, that's where those things come into play. Uh, that MAP21 rulemaking that you were referring to, for pavement condition thresholds, it basically has four criteria. IRI is one of them. And they have IRI cracking, rotting, and faulting. I believe they classify any IRI less than 95 as good, between 95 to 170 as fair, and more than 170 as poor. And they also have thresholds that are established based on the overall pavement condition, good, fair, and poor. For example, one of the criteria that's in MAP21 performance management is that no state can have more than 5% of their interstates in poor condition. Given IRI is just one of the four, but the way the thresholds are measured is that if any of the four criteria, if any of those four categories that are being measured, if any of them are in the poor, then the entire pavement is section is considered poor. For VDOT, we have established our performance targets. We do it slightly differently than what the feds do. We have what we call what percent of our network is in sufficient condition. We have a different condition index. We call it critical condition index, CCI. And again, it is made up of IRI, rotting, cracking, faulting, and all those distresses. And on our dashboard, the VDOT's dashboard, we do have measures that we have established, and those targets are out there. What percent of our interstates are in sufficient category? What percent are in deficient category? And that sort of drives and dictates which of our districts should receive how much of the half a billion dollar of payment funding that we distribute to each of the districts. So we are managing our payment condition based on those observed distresses and IRI being one of the very important measures of that. One of the things about IRI is that it is very important, and this is exactly what the traveling public feels. And we, as the engineers at the DOT, we try to manage the conditions based on all the other criteria as well, because IRI is sort of the result of all the distresses. If the pavement just doesn't start to become rough all of a sudden. You have cracks start to developing. Uh, sometimes you have rutting on the pavement. And of course, in concrete pavements, uh, jointed concrete pavements, you can have faulting. All those things result in a higher roughness. So as engineers, we are trying to sort of look at those precursors that eventually result in higher roughness at the end. And we are trying to establish our maintenance decision matrix and the funding distribution based off all these criteria. But at the end of the day, IRI or the roughness is what the, the traveling public feel and how they judge the DOT and the state as to how good of a job they're doing. Well, I just wanted to thank both of you all for your time today and being willing to, to come be a part of this conversation. I think it's really interesting. I think there are some states that are probably looking at things like smoothness and just don't necessarily know how to start approaching it and putting it into something like 
like the spec and I think your iterative approach is pretty novel. And it's definitely, as you said, y'all have seen the benefits of it. Thank you for sharing the story of what's happening in Virginia related to this. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you guys. Glad to be here. So after that conversation, my, my big takeaway is smoothness pays. Virginia DOT puts a 15% incentive on this, which isn't something to be trifled at. It, it could get substantial in terms of the cost for that. But they see enough benefits to value this one property to make it that important in the way that they handle their system. Well, I agree. And I think the big takeaway for me is just how today's conversation really illuminated just another way that something that is sustainable or would be sustainable is also very desirable, is the right choice for economical reasons. It's the right choice when you're looking at getting the best product, the product that people want. And then you get all these benefits. You're saving money on maintenance. You're saving money on the amount of fuel you're burning. So it's win, 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 and it's the right choice. And I really think that that was a big takeaway for me in terms of understanding how smoothness can provide all those benefits and how important it really is that we build smooth pavements. So I think we have a lot of examples of those type of things, but I really think that was the big thing I got from our conversation today. Thanks for listening to Pave It Black. Visit asphaltpavement.org slash podcast to find more episodes, suggest a topic or guest, become a sponsor, or learn more about NAPA. Pave It Black is produced and copyrighted by the National Asphalt Pavement Association. Music by Colleague. As always, thanks to the dedicated workforce connecting diverse communities all across America. Keep on paving it black.